Well, good Christmas morning. You know, if you own a Christmas tie and Christmas falls on Sunday, you kind of got to wear it. <laughs> Plus, I don't want my son-in-law to outdress me, so. Take your Bibles, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Micah, Micah chapter 5. Or page 758. Do we have the uh, screen ready here for... uh... We'll need it in a little bit. All right. Page 758 if you're using the Bibles here uh, as well. You know, for almost everyone who comes to the Christmas season, there is uh, a little bit of a tension between... The joys that you expect and the hurts that still exist, right? There's, uh, there's a, the fears and the worries sometimes are kind of competing. That's normal life. It just sometimes seems a little bit more stark at Christmas, especially if someone's maybe missing. You'd, you wish you could see them and you can't. And I know our church family, of course, has experienced deep losses recently. And so I don't know if any, if any of you experienced this. You, there's a little hesitation in your voice maybe when you say Merry Christmas when, when, when these things are, are going on in our hearts. I don't know when we've ever needed the promises that we look at today more than today. Um, our world has always needed them. And it centers on this, on this little town of Bethlehem that we find in this pretty well-known Christmas verse of Micah 5, 2. Uh, the little town of Bethlehem, you could say that song really comes from this description here. But since we've just completed our study of Second Kings as a series in the church family, I think we can maybe appreciate what the prophet Micah is saying here more than ever, uh, writing about 700 years before uh, Christ came. These, these verses we look at, kind of up to verse 5, um, they, they cover some of the high points of history to us and prophecy. It was all prophecy when Micah spoke them. Uh, some of its future to us yet today. It's about the first coming of Jesus, that's Christmas, but it's also about the second coming of Jesus. And one thing I just love about reading scripture and studying prophecy is that we have a God who is in such command of history that he can, he can look at this high point and this high point, and he doesn't have to always explain there's, there's a period of time in between, does he? So even in the first two verses, we are going to be kind of leapfrogging from one time to the next. Verse 1 and 2. Marshal your troops, O city of troops. He's referring to Jerusalem. For a siege is laid against it. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. That's that, that hurt that's coming. Verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old from ancient times. So there's a down and there's an up here. And these events are really far separated, as will be the next events that leapfrog even further ahead. But it's kind of like a, a dad who tells 
you know, tells the kids, you know, this summer we're going on vacation out west. And we're going to see, we're going to see Mount Rushmore. We're going to see this great carving in a mountain of, of some presidents. And then and we're going to see on this trip, we're going to see Pikes Peak. Well, you're also going to see cornfields, right? Because if you know the map, you know that to get to Mount Rushmore, there's a lot of cornfields. And when you're coming back from Pikes Peak, you'll see, you'll see more cornfields. And that's not even mentioning Wyoming that lies between Mount Rushmore and Pikes Peak, which is about several hundred miles, about as flat as a map of Wyoming. <laughs> and four or five people live there. <laughs> in, in this passage, Mike is touching some high points, and we will discover that we, we live kind of in the Wyoming uh, between some of them. So verse 1 is a, a big sad event that Micah is telling us by God's inspired wisdom, a big sad event that's going to happen in Israel because their capital city, the city of troops it is called here, is going down. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against it. It's kind of an exercise in futility. It's an ironic name to call it the city of troops, which is saying, hey, tough city, Get together, but you're going down. You're, you're known for your strength, but you're going to be losing. There's a siege coming, and it's the, it's the siege we just discussed, what was it, two weeks ago as we completed the book of 2 Kings, that Babylonian superpower has amassed and surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and they waited out till they starved the city enough to break through the walls, and, and they... They're forced to surrender. This, this statement about striking the ruler on the cheek is kind of a metaphor of that time and culture for a forced surrender. King Zedekiah is going to be forced to surrender when those walls are broken down. And, and Micah here called it about 100 years before. So just to kind of understand a little bit of the high points of history and, and prophecy that we're going to see here today, is it okay if we actually learn a few other things on a, on a, in a map kind of way. If we can go to our uh, next slide here. There we go. All right. There's a kingship. Began in 1040 and it lasted about 110 years as a united kingdom until the kingdom divided into north and south. And in the north, we had all bad kings, 10 tribes that, that were separated. But in 722, they came to their end because of their sin. And the Assyrians came in and disseminated them all over the Assyrian territories. Judah, this southern kingdom, that tribe of, of the city of David, of the, of the person of David and that kingly line, it lasted longer. And they survived till 586 when the Babylonians did what verse 1 said they were going to do. But Micah is actually a, a prophet who, who prophesied during several kings, probably three kings. In fact, chapter 1 verse 1 says the three kings. And so we're guessing a little bit, but we think he had this prophecy about 700 BC. But if you can see on the map, that means that already the people of Judah have watched their cousins to the north go down. So if, if you can just imagine the terrifying feeling it is that it happened to them, could it happen to us? It'd be like as if, we, if we read in the news tomorrow that, 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 that Canada has been overtaken by a terrorist nation, wouldn't we ask ourselves, oh, are we next? And Micah was really telling them, yes, we are next because our city of troops is going to have a siege 
and it's going to be going down. They didn't know the dates, when it would be, 586. There'd be 100 years. They didn't know it'd be that. So it could happen at any time. In fact, when it happened, Jeremiah, a prophet of the next generation, would be sitting on a hill outside of the city of Jerusalem and lamenting, five chapters of lamenting. And he actually uses the same phrase that Micah used here when he said, let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him and let him be filled with disgrace. Because King Zedekiah was forced to surrender and said, okay, I give up, Babylon. Here's my city. If you remember how sad that event was, the final evil king, Zedekiah, is captured, led away, what, some 80, 70, 80 miles north, where the Babylonians force him to watch the execution of his three sons. Then they gouge out his eyes and take him in chains to live out the rest of his years in Babylonian captivity with that visual memory. So it's, it's a pretty sad verse, verse 1 is. Israel's ruler in verse 1 is, is the guy who has to endure this. But, verse 2, ready for some, some good news, people of Judah. Are we ready for some good news, America? Are we ready for good news, grieving friends, or whatever our hurts are? I'm sure that Micah would have wished to be able to say to Judah, it's going to be okay, we're going to last forever. I'm sure that, uh, you know, we'd, we'd like to stand in pulpits as preachers and say, America's always going to be okay. But, but we can't say that. What we can say is, as followers of Christ, we're going to be okay. And we're going to be okay because of the ruler who came to Bethlehem. That's why we know we'll be okay. Because he's the God who fixes God who fixes our fears. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins, this is different, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So there's a ruler in verse 1, there's a ruler in verse 2, but oh boy, are they ever different rulers. The ruler of verse 1 is in Jerusalem. The ruler in verse 2 is going to begin in the tiny town of Bethlehem because God has a specialty of doing mighty things with tiny things. It's just his way. In fact, Bethlehem was so small they had to identify which one it was. There were actually two Bethlehems in the nation of Israel. One was in the northern territory uh, that the tribe of Zebulun had, and the, the other one was this one in, in Judah. They're both actually small, but this one is actually too small to even be listed in the list of the towns of their respective tribes. Going back to the time of Joshua, about 1400 BC, <clears throat> when he led the Israelites to conquer the nation, you know, they, they, they said, okay, this tribe gets this city, these cities, and this tribe gets this, these cities. Well, in the list of Zebulun, Bethlehem's included. They get to the list, the inventory of cities that they captured for their own in Judah, and Bethlehem, Ephrathah doesn't even make the cut. And this is where God's going to do something great. It's kind of like, kind of like Canalsville. Who knows what Canalsville is, okay? All right. Who lives in Canalsville? <laughs> Who eats in Canalsville? 
The, okay, Plears Full Circle Restaurant, formerly Nislet, that's, that's Canalsville, just so you know. That's a Bethlehem, okay? It kind of lost its identity for its smallness. There's a principle here that God does his greatest works through insignificant people, sometimes in insignificant places. David was from Bethlehem, wasn't it? It, It's really only claim to fame, and it became a big one, was it was the city of David. But back when David was living there, he was the youngest brother of a family of a lot of boys, and his own dad didn't even invite him to the meal where the prophet Samuel was going to come and anoint the next king. He was kind of an afterthought. He was the youngest, but he becomes the king who is the king at the head of the line of which Jesus Christ would complete. Many people struggle with insecurity, just in case you thought you were the only one in the room. Um, Jesus fixes our insecurity when we begin to understand that our relationship to him is what brings significance to our life. And, and, and I, I see so many Christians who have a, an insecurity Christian complex. Like, God can't probably use me in doing something really significant. You know, I know people who do, you know, but not me. And, and we have to realize that when we're connected to Christ, the, the part that's significant is the Christ part. And it's not us. And God can use anyone to do anything that he wants to do. And that is how God begins to heal and fix our own sense of insecurities when we realize our connection to him. When, when Paul talks about being in Christ, that's a big deal because you are part of the biggest deal of all. So Bethlehem is insignificant, but out of you, a ruler will come for Israel. Not, you know, not Jerusalem, but out of Bethlehem. And, and, and as, as Micah says that, by this time, this is 700 B.C., 300 years after David, the, the attentive godly Jew is connecting the dots and saying, oh yeah, I get it, Bethlehem, because that's where David is from. And in fact, they would have probably, the, the, the ones who, who came to the temple, the ones who heard the scribes read the scriptures, would have known perhaps even this passage in Second Samuel about how God had promised David a forever kingly descendant. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And indeed, David is pretty well known. But here's the other part. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. There's only one way that was fulfilled. And it's through Jesus Christ, who is the forever king and a direct descendant of David. And the godly Jews of Micah's day and the centuries uh, even before hung on to that promise. The people of Judah, as, you, as we studied the divided kingdom, the people of Judah, that southern kingdom, hung tenaciously to this promise and consistent, continually insisted on putting a descendant of David on the throne. Even if the king was a bad king, and there were plenty, even in the south, Even if it was a bad king, they said, we're still going to make his son the next king because we believe in God's promise. In the north, by contrast, there were multiple dynasties due to assassinations and hostile takeovers and bloodshed. uh, But now, out of you, Bethlehem of Judah, 
will come someone who will be a forever ruler. And all we have to do is fast forward then to the accounts of the coming of Jesus in Matthew and in Luke. And indeed, put your pin in the map, that is Bethlehem, that is where Jesus came, which is actually quite a miracle because Mary and Joseph are from where? They're from Nazareth, clear to the north. But that census thing, God sovereignly, and he, he always does that, doesn't he? Sovereignly puts together events, and he, he says, okay, now, but I, I said you're going to be in Bethlehem. You're going to be in Bethlehem when it comes time for the birth. And uh, Herod the king later on is freaked out when the wise men show up and say, what's this about a king born in Bethlehem? And sends the scribes back to their scrolls, and they say, yeah, we found this verse in Micah 5.2. It is going to be Bethlehem. But now Micah adds something that is mind-blowing. Not, it's not mind-blowing he'd be born in Bethlehem, but it's mind-blowing that he would have... His origins are from old, from ancient times. You may have the words everlasting or long ago. It's, it's, it's two Hebrew terms that independently already mean like they've always been. And then he puts them together. There's only a couple places in the Old Testament where they even put these two words together. But it, like it, it compounds the emphasis. Proverbs 8, 22 and 23 says, it's like before the beginning of the earth. And so it's forcing us to, to think about eternity in two directions. Any of us can kind of humanly conceive of time keeping going because we can't conceive of time not keeping going, right? But how do you conceive of time always having been. How do, you, how do you think backwards? Well, Psalm 9 says, yeah, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. And Jesus is God, so he is no beginning, no end. He has always been. He's eternal. And that's why, in fact, he is the God-man. His humanity began in conception and birth in Bethlehem. But his deity has always been so he could be God and he could be man. He had to be man in order to die on the cross. He had to be God for that death on the cross to pay for our sins. And it did. He's eternal. He controls eternity. And that's why he can offer us eternity because of who he is. So he proved it at his first coming. There's more that Micah has to say. And I think it's important for us to understand a little bit more about the second coming of Jesus because he continually is unfolding who he is because wherever, whether you're living in 700 BC or the time of Jesus or the, whether you're living in 2022 going into 23, we need to know the nature of Jesus because we all have those hurts, the worries, the, the fears, the stuff of life and we have to understand there is somebody who is at work to make it all make sense and make it all come together and we have an eternal future and so we have, an e we have a present hope because of our eternal future. So we just have to understand God's greater plan, even for earth. So you could really say that in his first coming, he died and accomplished our eternal life. But there's actually more planned for planet earth that is described in verses 3, 4, and 5. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned, and it was, until the time when she who is in labor gives birth, and she did, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. Some unity in Israel. He, who's that? The ruler who's going to come. He, verse 4, will stand and shepherd his flock. 
in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they, Israel, will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. These are, these are incredible promises to very troubled Jews 700 years before Christ. The northern ten kingdoms have been decimated, uh, tribes have been decimated. They're now hearing that Jerusalem is going to fall. Uh, there's a lot of evil and idolatry going on, even as Micah speaks. So, so uh, the, the religious life is a mess. Families are a mess. But there will be some godly ones whose ears are hearing the word of God and saying, yes, that's true. Micah, tell us about it. Well, the Bethlehem baby, the ruler without beginning or end, is going to bring unity, first of all, verse 3. And ultimately, peace, verses 4 and 5. When has Israel been united? Um, when has Jesus stood and shepherded his entire flock in strength and majesty and known around the earth as strength and majesty? When, when has there been a time when Israel has dwelt securely apart from David and Solomon, those early united kings? And when has there been peace on earth? You know, you read that and go... It wasn't 700 B.C. It wasn't in the time of Jesus' first coming. It didn't happen in the Middle Ages or the Industrial Age. It's certainly not happening in our post-World War technology age. There's, this stuff isn't... Either, either Micah swung and missed on this prophecy or, or what? Or it's still going to happen. It's still going to happen. It's still going to happen... Because of Jesus, it's going to happen in Israel, and there is a future on earth for them. So let's just try to do one more learning piece here on a Christmas Day. Students, you thought you were off school. But let's take a look at Bible prophecy, kind of a big, broad sweep of some things that we know, especially since last week we were looking at 1 Thessalonians 4, drawing hope and, and comfort from the promise of his coming in the rapture. Let's just briefly sort out what we're talking about today. His first coming, he came to save. Born in a manger, dying on a cross, resurrected, the tomb is empty. And so that ushers in the age in which we live now, the church age. I mean, I'm always thinking we're towards the end, but I guess so did Paul, but I really think we're getting there. So the church age, but we talked last week about the rapture. Jesus comes back to this is a, it's called a mystery, a new piece of revelation that you didn't find in Micah or Isaiah or Jeremiah. It was new information. It's when Jesus comes to complete the church age. He takes us. This is, this is our story right there we were looking at last week. And so we are taken to heaven and we are there forever, okay? We are with Christ forever in our, and, and, and on earth life goes on though. And so that's why we have the book of Revelation, Chapters 4 through 18 tell us what's going to happen on earth, especially during those seven years, difficult, terrible, hard years of, of the tribulation, but a time that's going to be culminated. And this is Jesus' second coming that Mike is talking about. He comes to rule and at the, in this period of time of the tribulation, culminating in his return, by the way, to Jerusalem, not Bethlehem this time, to Jerusalem. He'll judge evil. Many Jews will be saved. God wraps up his plan for the Jewish people. And we have one more important season on earth called the millennium. 
Revelation chapter 20 describes it exactly as a thousand years, so we know that's a literal time on earth. But the blanks are filled in of what that age looks like by Micah and Isaiah and Jeremiah. Major portions of the prophets of the Old Testament are about that special time on earth, not heaven. The lion laying down with the lamb, I'm sorry, that's not heaven. That's earth where God's going to make the desert bloom like a rose. He's going to do a lot of amazing things here on earth, showing that he can and it's to be an assurance to people whether they were living back in the B.C. times or whether we're living today in our calendar or whether it'll be people living then. We know that he's in charge. And so Micah is actually talking about this special time on earth, again, exposing the nature of that ruler and our Savior so that we would have confidence whatever piece of life it find, in which it finds us. Verse 3, unity, first of all. There'll be a test later on, by the way. Until the time when she who's in labor gives birth. And that could be Israel, pictured as she. I like to think it's perhaps Mary specifically who will give birth to this ruler. And that ruler is going to unite the nation in the millennium. Israel was divided so long, Jesus fixes that. Jesus fixes disunity. And boy, if you've been awake the last couple of years, you know and understand a, a, a nation divided. Micah's day, it was a nation divided. These people had been living on either side of an invisible line, and they were supposed to not like each other. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. But, verse 3 says, the rest of his brothers are going to return to join the Israelites. We all know how miserable conflict is. In, in my years as a pastor, I've seen a lot of hard things that people go through. I don't know of anything harder than conflict. Um, people estranged, not talking uh, to one another that used to be married, used to be family, used to be partners, used to be whatever it is. And, 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 and this conflict thing and tears at the soul. And, and we read here that that ruler who's going to come is going to bring people together. That's what he does. Someday he's going to fix all conflict. So that was assurance to Mike. It's, it's assurance about the, the millennial age. But I like to think of even how ultimately heaven is that reunion of even Christians who didn't get along. Won't that be great? It's going to all be solved, which gives us actually perhaps some fuel to say, wait a minute, we've got Christ already. Why can't we, why can't we come together around Christ? He fixes conflicts today. There's a ton of grace available flowing from the cross. And that if we submit to his authority, forgive like the cross shows us, why not? Realistically, for me, it tells me if it doesn't happen, it will. It will because that's what Jesus does. The rest of his brothers will return to join the Israelites and there's so much more. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Uh, shepherd, what a beautiful picture of who God is and specifically who Jesus is. And Jesus already used that description of himself when he was with his disciples before the age we live in. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So Jesus knows who his sheep are, and I trust you have 
understood the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he died for your sins to, so you would put your faith in him and join his family, his flock, his, 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 you would be part of this shepherding because he laid down his life for that. Interesting how Jesus uh, is referred to in the New Testament as the Lamb of God who makes the sacrifice, but here he's also the, sacri- he's also the sacrificial shepherd that would die for his sheep, which is what he did. The cross, which is our biggest need, and our sin, which is the greatest, most important thing that he fixed that's broken. He'll be strong and majestic and great. Um, you think of how the name and person of Jesus is described today. It's, it's kind of a mixture of Jesus the rabbit's foot charm kind of a thing, bracelet, necklace. Not that that's wrong. I'm just saying that sometimes people almost see it like it's a good luck charm, just you got to dangle a cross someplace. Other times Jesus is a subject of ridicule. But Micah says someday he will be known strength, majesty, and they will live in secure, secu- they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. <laughs> He's hardly recognized as great to the ends of the earth today, is he? But he will be because he will be reigning in Jerusalem. It's fascinating to study that era of the millennial kingdom on earth. Remember, we're in heaven, but here on earth, he'll be ruling in Jerusalem, and everybody will know who he is. You would think that everybody's going to believe in him, but it doesn't say that that's going to take place. Because at the end of that thousand years when Satan is released, there's actually a bunch of people who have been harboring rebellion against Christ, and they're going to unleash it at Jesus. But here on earth, there'll be an amazing world to live in that everybody knows who Jesus is and his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth in uh, Luke chapter 1 the angel Gabriel who showed up to talk to Mary about her, her role as the mother of this son of God said you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus he will be great and will be called the son of the most high the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. The fulfillment, uh, the repetition of the fulfillment that was started when we read those words in 2 Samuel 7, I'll give you a throne forever. And it will be his amazing control over all things. One thing I think it's important about studying prophecy as we come across it is that we see God's control of all of time. It puts our little slice and whether you get 20, 40, 60, 80, or 100 years, no matter what you get, it is a tiny slice that fits into God's plan. And, and, and I know that as we, as, we, as we attend funerals of those we love, we, we are kind of shocked into that large, larger, longer perspective of time in a good way. To say, if this was all there was, then indeed it's, you know, if we die like plants and animals, and it's over, this, this is empty, this is meaningless. But since we live forever with Christ, we can live this slice in confidence, knowing there's a time where there will be no more tears, crying, pain, or death. The millennium seems to be like just a little bit larger snapshot of what Christ is like by what he does on earth, just like the church today. We are a tiny snapshot of what Christ can do to a very needy world. 
Finally, that first line of verse 5 says, and he will be their peace. Uh, Isaiah prophesying about the same time about Jesus said unto us, a son is given, a child is born, the government, wonderful counselor, what else? Prince of peace. When the angels showed up to, to tell the shepherds about the birth of Jesus, they declared peace on earth. Not then, not now, but one day, peace on earth. Goodwill towards men. Our planet is rife with conflict everywhere. Not peace. People kill each other over stuff, money, politics, power, pride, nations. This world's supposed to give us a yearning for the next. And we're going to be exhausted with disappointment if we expect that a government is going to bring about world peace. But Jesus said, you can have peace. And so Jesus declared to his disciples before he went to the cross and returned to heaven, he said, peace I leave with you. So it's not all future, is it? World peace is future. Internal peace is now. I'm going to leave my peace with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. So we, his people, can have peace in a very unpeaceful, troubled world. I don't know what troubles you, but he is our peace. Alexander McLaren said, peace is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of God. Now we have. We have that now. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you have peace with God, and so you can have peace within. The bottom line is, do we trust the God who alone gives peace? Everyone in the room or anyone watching now has hurts you can't fix, fears you can't fully resolve, grief you can't shake, aches that haven't gone away and may not on this side, but we are worshiping the God of all peace. The greatest peace of all, where it all starts, is your peace with God. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. We've talked about peace with one another. We've talked about world peace. We've talked even about our internal peace. But that comes from this peace. Because the reality is that we have all started life not at peace with God. Because we're all sinners. As sinners, we cannot be at peace with a holy God. There is a, there's a problem, there's a barrier of sin that keeps a sinner from being at peace with a holy God. But what God is promising is that we can be justified through faith and then we would have peace with God, but it's only through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified means to be made righteous. So he is righteous, he is holy, he is perfect. That's why we're not at peace with him. He doesn't become like us to be like us. He became like us so that we could become like him. And we become righteous. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, his perfect son, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us or on our behalf 
so that we might be made the righteousness of God in or through him. Here's the thing. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins and rose again, then you are declared righteous. And that's what qualifies you for heaven. You have to be fully perfect, fully righteous like he is. And that happens because he removes your sin debt and in its place puts his own righteousness. And that's what it means to be justified. Since So this Paul, Paul is writing to Roman Christians who have already done that and, and maybe, maybe most are, uh, people listening and, or watching right now are, you've done that too. But probably there's some that haven't. He's writing to those who already have peace in God. And it's to be known and read by those of us if you have not put your faith in Christ so that you can have peace with God. We are justified by faith. You are made right with God if you put your trust in Jesus Christ alone. And I would invite you to do that. He will be your peace when you are at peace with him. And you do that by faith in Christ. If you have any questions about that, Christmas would be a wonderful time to settle your eternal destiny by placing your faith in him and he fixes the sin problem that we've all had our whole life. Let's pray together as we thank him for who he is. Heavenly Father, we are grateful this morning to gather in your name on the day we honor your birth. Lord Jesus, you have come to fix what's broken and we are. And we feel it in so many ways. We thank you that you are the one who intersected with humanity, this planet, came to earth, became one of us because you wanted us to become righteous like you so you could spend eternity enjoying our presence as we enjoy yours. And so we pray for any this morning who have not placed their faith in you, that they would search and get every question answered to simply put their faith in Christ. And then we pray for those who, uh, of us who have already placed our faith in you where we are struggling to find peace through uh, other means, peace that cannot be given by the world. I pray that we would find it in your presence and enjoy your presence today when we honor your birth. In Jesus' name, amen.